Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That for your 2023 AEW Full Gear Instant Analysis. That's right, getting over is back once again and we are here just minutes after AEW Full Gear went off the air to break down everything that happened on AEW's penultimate pay-per-view for 2023 we had two at least in my opinion incredible matches on the show and plenty more to discuss before we get out of here so we are not going to waste any time getting to it right off the top allow me to remind you that the getting over wrestling podcast is all about Defy. So please remember to leave a five-star rating for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. On Apple, take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all that good stuff. But you also get to vote in our pre- and post-show polls surrounding pay-per-views and premium live events, which factor into our final grades at the end of this show. So you contribute. We hear you and it becomes a part of our instant analysis, but you can only do that if you follow us on Twitter at getting overcast. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year. You can become an official getting overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, sign up. You get bonus audio, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling. We do extra Go home shows right ahead of pay-per-views and premium live events like we just did on Friday for Full Gear, and you get exclusive news posts every Friday as well. We have two new people who recently signed up. We'll shout them out on Tuesday, but you can join us as well. Buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. It is at this point of the show that I get to welcome in vintage Chris Vanini, who does join for this instant analysis. It also means I get to crack open a cold one. And we do that as a signature here, I should say, on these instant analysis episodes tonight. I have from Stone Brewing, Fight on Pale Ale, representing USC. Not going that well for the Trojans right now. I was going to save this and hope it came after one of their wins recently, but didn't happen. Lost to UCLA in a rivalry game. Not sure what's going to happen with Lincoln Riley, Caleb Williams. He gone, but I'm going to go ahead and enjoy this cold one right now. Chris, I heard... A little birdie told me you actually have a decent beer with you tonight. So what do you got? I do. I've heard the comments, the criticisms that I need to get on board with better beer. I prepared this time. And coincidentally, you have a USC college football beer. Mm-hmm. I have a college football beer. Okay. This is from this is Pistol Pete's 1888 from Bosque Brewing in New Mexico. It's a New Mexico State beer a blonde ale okay they sent it to me a couple of weeks ago they sent me a couple of things i just they popped up in the mail one day and so we both have college football themed beers uh new mexico state beat auburn today wow they okay nine and right they're having a great season so shout out new mexico state thanks for sending along this beer and we'll see how it tastes so interesting uh usc ah, slash stone brewing i would say stone really sent me these beers so i'm not gonna say what I'm about to say to shill for them because it's not the point. Although I will say straight up, I do love stone brewing in general, but this is delicious. And again, no paid sponsorship, nothing, but I took two sips of this and it is freaking fantastic. So if I don't know where they're selling it, I don't know if it's across the nation. It is a USC beer. So maybe it's in California, the West coast. I'm not sure. But if you see 
uh, the Stone Fight On Pale Ale, whether you like USC or not, I'm telling you, really freaking good. And I actually can't wait for you to speak a little bit more on this show so that way I can drink it. But folks, as we get into this right before we get into our AEW Full Gear Instant Analysis, where we're going to break down every single match from Full Gear, along with a couple things that transpired Friday night across uh, Collision and Rampage. I do want to state, just so everyone understands, so we're here on the same playing field. It is immensely difficult to review a pay-per-view, especially one as intricate as the ones that AEW puts on, like from a work rate perspective, when it's a secondary priority in terms of what's going on simultaneously in your life. Chris and I, we are both deeply involved in sports and college football as part of our professional careers. That takes immense priority, especially during the fall. And on Saturday, when there's games going on, we had Washington and Oregon State going on. My team, Florida, was playing Missouri, an absolutely excruciating loss happening while this show is going on. It is very difficult to accurately break down and review a pay-per-view like this when it's a secondary priority. That said, I did the best job I possibly could paying attention, breaking things down, but there are obviously items that I'm bound to have missed that I otherwise would have caught if 100% fully focused on the show. That could potentially affect opinions if I miss something key, and it could also perhaps affect match grades. But here's what I'm gonna promise you right now. I did as good a job as I possibly could have, that's number one. Number two, I promise I will double back and rewatch the three or four key matches on this show a second time before Thursday's AEW show and make any appropriate adjustments in terms of opinion or in terms of match grade by Thursday. So I just wanted to say that off the top before we got into the show. I wanted everyone to be on the same page, what we're getting into here. It is now time for the AEW full gear instant analysis. We're actually going to kick things off with something from zero hour. And that's of course, because it involved MJF. So the ROH tag team championships, MJF and an opponent to be announced potentially against the guns on collision. MJF called Tony Schiavone a fat old prick in a show-ending interview. He said he was defending the tag team titles because he was keeping a promise to Adam Cole and would do whatever it takes. MJF said Jay White is insecure and that he stole the title to prove himself that he is championship material because he can't do it in the ring. He also pointed out the entire journey has been unlikely, so winning two matches at full gear, those were odds he liked. There was nothing wrong with this. It didn't exactly sell me on him or the match. Then on Rampage, White basically got the same type of interview with Renee Paquette. The devil showed up on the screen behind him for two seconds. Apparently, both of the guns now have nicknames with cock in them, but White was otherwise far better than MJF at selling himself and selling the match. MJF attacked White, absolutely kicked the shit out of him, only for Juice Robinson to interfere, throw him into a random room. When the door opened, MJF had Juice bloodied, and he was going to, like, kill him with a TV, but White led a chase out to the ring where MJF got his ass kicked three-on-one, Samoa Joe made the save, stared MJF down in the corner, shook his hand. They agreed to be partners. So unlike what we got on Collision, this effectively sold full gear for me. It really should have main evented Collision, but I guess AEW didn't want to put it head to head with SmackDown, which is understandable. I get saving it for Rampage, but I think maybe 200,000 people saw it, maybe less than that. So it felt like it should have been done either earlier or potentially Wednesday. Chris, do you have any kind of take on all this before we get into these two big MJF matches. Uh, no, I agree. It was a strain. The go-home build was kind of strange, especially with the way Dynamite ended, and then you throw that late thing happening on top. It was 
you know, they had to do collision on Friday, rampage on Friday. You try to make that a big deal, I guess. But uh, I don't know why this pay-per-view was on Saturday instead of Sunday. Maybe it was the building availability. But, uh, yeah, it made for a strange go-home week. Well, NFL. And that, that point included. It's NFL. Tony Khan yeah, but refuses to run against the NFL. I guess. He, I, they I, did I've, make an exception. I've, I haven't been watching all of AEW. I haven't been watching all of AEW this fall but uh have the other pay-per-views been on saturday they they made one exception i forget if it was for wrestle dream or a different one but they did make one exception for whatever reason but he the reason why he does saturday all year but especially in the fall is because he doesn't want to run against the nfl and you know that's what it is so let's get to this roh tag team title match mjf was full baby face wearing lakers colors in la the booking (laughs) here was that mjf kept taking tons of punishment but joe kept saving the day with hot runs joe set up for a muscle buster mjf tagged in tried to do it the guns broke it up. MJF blocked 310 to Yuma. Joe tagged in as he geared up for a kangaroo kick. The guns escaped stereo muscle buster and caught Joe with 310 to Yuma. MJF broke the fall. They went to hit it again when Adam Cole's music hit. He came out in a full boot on one of his uh, ankles, crutches too. And with the distraction, Joe got a coquina clutch for the retention as MJF hugged Cole. Joe then shook hands with MJF and now he gets a world title match based on their agreement. MJF and Cole brought it up afterwards giving the guns an opening to attack MJF, completely destroy his knee with the steel chair. They smacked it, they wrapped it, did a stomp off the ropes. MJF sold it really hard. Trainers came to help him, stretchered him off all the way into an ambulance, out to the hospital. MJF yelled from the ambulance for Cole not to let anyone take his championship. So let me get this straight, okay? Dominant world champion MJF. Dominant former ROH TV champion Samoa Joe, who is now, by the way, number one contender for the AEW title, needed a distraction from Cole to beat the guns. That's ridiculous. And then the guns start attacking MJF and Joe, the guy who just had MJF's back and is now guaranteed a title match as long as MJF retains. He has no desire to run back out and help him. Like, where did he go? Did he disappear into a void and no one's telling him what's happening? I get wanting the coal pop. And I also understand they wanted to do a storyline of fans getting to buy into MJF being injured. And oh my God, it's an inevitable title change. Maybe Cole has a role in it because now he's on TV. Maybe he's the devil. I assumed that was going to be a red herring at this juncture. But this was to me simply a logical booking, a major logic hole. There were so many other ways this could have been accomplished with more logical booking. The match, I went three stars and a B minus, but I did not like the setup here. It was weird. I had the same thought of like, wait, why isn't uh, him coming out? Why isn't the acclaimed coming out of their entire? Like, I, I don't know. Like you kind of it, it was a bit of a logic hole there, but it was interesting like, you know, to, to have him on a pre-show tag team match, but then it be an important storyline that plays into the main event that made zero hour matter even more. It felt like a really good Sunday night heat before an attitude era pay-per-view. Absolutely. Like you kind of got to yeah. watch what's happening on the pre-show because it's going to play a big factor in the main show. So I like the idea of what they did. Could you have done it a little bit a different way? Sure. But I, I, I thought it kept me interested and intrigued and waiting to see what happened at the end of the show. Um, 
you know, and, and so I think that worked. It's rare we get a storyline like that on a pay-per-view, you know, something at the beginning of the show, something later. So that felt fresh. Show that Juice Robinson threw Samoa Joe into a room and locked it. Or, you know, there's just, there are so many different ways that could have been accomplished without the logic gap is what I'm trying to say. And we got to call it out when there's something like that because it's just so blatant as far as I was concerned. But again, to your point, it created intrigue for the pay-per-view that we needed to see how it was going to play out on the main show. So let's go ahead and get to that. AW Championship, MJF versus Jay White, obviously scheduled as the main event. After the opening match of the main card, Tony Schiavone, a referee, and Jay White all came out for an announcement. Tony said MJF is injured, he will not defend the title, and the main event is canceled. As White was about to be named champion, Cole stopped the entire proceeding, saying he would defend the title if MJF cannot. White was obviously fine because he's going to fight a one-legged man. Now, giving you my live take on it before I saw anything that happened in the match, at this point, I felt the storyline was massively convoluted. How could Cole be medically cleared to wrestle on one leg where he just had two apparent surgeries on it, where MJF is in the hospital? It is very soon after he arrived because there's only been one match that's transpired yet he's been ruled completely out of the show. Either Cole has not been seriously injured this whole time, or in my head at this point, I'm like, they might have a one-legged MJF come back and beat a massive recent signee in Jay White despite having one leg. Maybe Cole's going to help him. So again, you take the initial part of the story that I had an issue with, and then you bring it to this, and you're like, why can't MJF possibly get cleared if Cole can get cleared for this match? To me, that was another logic gap that just didn't make a lot of sense. It was, but if you didn't think about it, it <laughs> I liked it. Like you've got not MJF supposed to think? being put into, the, you've got MJF being put into the ambulance, saying, "Adam, don't let them take my championship. Don't let them take my championship." You know, so like he's like on the verge of tears, and so this is Adam Cole's solution. Now, does it make sense? No, the, the, the medically cleared part of wrestling has always been a little bit weird. And we're going to there's going to be another part of that uh, at, before the match starts where we're going to have that same conversation. So, yes, it was weird, but I was connected to it enough that I was like, whatever, I'm enjoying. This. Well, again, so there's, yes, there's a difference. Wrong. Let's be it, clear. Again, it's a, it didn't make sense, but I, I but I still appreciated it. Let's be clear. There's a difference between entertainment value and storytelling and logic. I was entertained by this. I'm not saying I wasn't, yeah. but there is still a significant logic gap that is continuing to transpire as they're telling the story, which let's also remember is entirely contained on this one show. They didn't come into full gear with the storyline. They decided this right. is something we need to put into action on zero hour because it's well, going to so like, because it's going to make the main event more compelling, in their opinion, in Tony Khan's opinion. I, I was, yeah, well, that, that's I mean, look, if you want to get full in kayfabe, do you say like, look, Tony Khan realizes he can't not have a main event for the show. They don't want to just give him the title. Adam Cole came up with this idea. I'm willing to waive this because it's something people want to see. I like I don't know, like it, it doesn't make sense, but it's not the first time this has happened in pro wrestling either. Uh, I think to this kind of degree where an injured person is going to take the spot of a person who just got injured <laughs> without that person I being mean, given had, it, had, the person's not the, the person, the champion, 20, hold on. The champion who got injured didn't look, even, doesn't even get a chance to like wait an hour to determine whether they can compete or not. It's 20 minutes. Like, well, sure. But, but 
not the exact same thing, but we did have Cody Rhodes fighting with a cat. Oh yeah, I'm going to talk here, about that. You know, like oh yeah, and and not just that, a torn pe- pectoral against Seth Rollins. There are comparisons to me. Yes. There's no question about that. So we're going to get to that for sure. So anyway, Cole entered for the match. Uh, he was ready to go. He's ready to fight Jay White. MJF arrived as expected in an ambulance, limping to the ring with a wrap around his knee and upper thigh. No brace, nothing, just a wrap. The guns got ejected from ringside early. MJF bit White's forehead and hit a kangaroo kick. MJF, like a dummy, tried to Panama sunrise on an injured knee, hurt himself, and ate a uranagi. The AEW announce table collapsed as they were trying to do a table spot. So instead, MJF did a flying elbow drop off the top rope, basically directly onto the floor. Gutsy and ballsy as hell by him not having that cushion. MJF in the tree of woe pulled White off the ropes for a suplex. White pulled him down with a great avalanche Uranagi. MJF countered Blade Runner and eventually hit a tombstone pile driver, again selling the knee. White pushed MJF off Heat Seeker, but he ran right at him, jumping over the top rope to pull White down off the apron with a cutter at ringside. Then he continuously collapsed due to the knee with White hitting dragon screws and a figure four leg lock. Cole threatened to throw in the towel. MJF screamed not to do it. He reversed the figure four. Cole then tried to use the ROH title on White, but completely like stalled for some reason. White pulled it away from him, drilled MJF in the head for a false finish. Then MJF booted White backwards into the referee. Cole put the dynamite diamond ring on the mat. White grabbed it in another situation where like Cole screwed up leaving it there when he could have reached out and just gotten it. MJF hit a low blow coming back. He stole the ring. He took out both guns who ran down to interfere, but at least the referee was down when they came back after being ejected. And then MJF punched White with the dynamite diamond ring for the one, two, three to retain the title. And that is one area in which I kind of need to be clear that frustrates me about AEW. Title shots never result in pinfalls. But the dynamite diamond ring, you get hit in the head with that, you're knocked out. Separating the match from the booking, okay? The wrestling and storytelling between the bells was pretty damn great. The guys put on an absolute show. There were some breathtaking sequences, some superb false finishes, great work across the board. The spot where MJF did an elbow drop despite the announce table cushion collapsing was straight up wild. I never would have done that. I don't care if you're paying me $5 million a year. I'm not doing that. I set up another table, put the guy on it. Then I do the elbow drop. Major guts on his part. And he continues to look like the guy in AEW. But we do have to point out that MJF on one leg from the opening bell through this entire match, really without any assistance from Cole, actually Cole was a hindrance to him at ringside, which strengthens this point even further. He took down White with a ring punch. That's not really keeping White strong at all for him to lose to a one-legged man in that way. It was overbooked to a significant degree. And while the crowd loved it, I have to make that very clear. Man, I am massively mixed on this match. This was Super Cena booking to the nth degree. This was Cody Rhodes booking. You mentioned with like the broken forearm against Brock Lesnar. I related it more closely to the injured pectoral against Seth Rollins with the exception being you could literally see the injury. You knew it was real. And therefore, you were emotionally bought into that saying, I can't believe he's actually accomplishing this in real life not just in kayfabe. Also, Seth Rollins was not the champion there, nor was he contending for the title. 
Here, it was a kayfabe injury, and they did like a 30-minute match, or however long this was. Or yeah, I think it was 30 minutes, where MGF was able to yep. go the entire time. He's jumping over the top rope on an injured knee doing a cutter. He's jumping off the top rope to do an elbow drop. He's doing a ton of moves where you land on your knees and then he's selling it, you know, which is fair. But he keeps doing them instead of doing moves where that isn't required. I mean, look, there may be, Chris, further reason for this knee injury angle as the storyline continues transpiring through the next month. So maybe it's all going to make sense in the future. They had to do it here because something else is going to happen. Maybe it leads to a title change. But on full gear alone, this one night, they took a match that did not need any additional drama, and they made the booking of MJF over White look even worse for White when it was unnecessary. It did, for me, add to the entertainment of the entire show, no doubt. That despite everyone knowing exactly what would happen ultimately with MJF returning, but it came at a cost of the way White looked coming out of this match. He came across like a total schmuck. He didn't belong in the main event against a guy on one leg who has taken belt shots and multiple finishers and had two matches on the night, got beat down with a chair, and he still lost to him. I'd call it pretty clean, even though it was with a ring. And all this guy accomplished was he stole the title and ran around with it for a while, and his faction beat up MJF. And then he just got bitched out in this match. So that's my frustration with it. I can point out the greatness because there were parts of it that were great. I loved parts of this. But the storytelling, the concept of the entire thing, the booking of it, it really rubbed me the wrong way. I think I like the storytelling. I didn't like the booking. For, yeah, for, okay. For what Correct. You said. Yeah, storytelling good, booking bad. I agree, yes. Yeah, Jay White looks like a schmuck. You know, for, yeah. for carrying the title around for like a freaking month and then losing to a one-legged guy without like a large amount of interference. Uh, I will say you you really kind of hate on the diamond ring for whatever, but I hate it. So I much. like that it's pro- I like that it's protected. Like whatever you think or don't think about the ring specifically, like it's consistently like a knockout punch. And so like I I do appreciate the consist with that we see, we've seen people kick out of title belts for decades. It, like we know that by now. So but I do it's appreciate all, that the But ring it's always that. sky blue kicks out of title shots to the head. I mean everyone does. It's it's that's wild. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So so that is that so like I'm okay with the ring ending it and that's the way you try to protect Jay White. But the fact that it even came down to that is the part that makes him look like a sure. schmuck having the having the guns there for a while doing all these other things and it just it just not working going back to the beginning it was very weird and funny and nonsensical that you had a bunch of people trying to keep mjf from getting to the ring to wrestle in this match or to not wrestle mm-hmm. because they want to let the literal one-legged guy wrestle instead like that was totally fine like that right that was very much another emphasis of that inconsistency of where like they really don't want mjf to go but adam cole is okay that doesn't make sense but it, it is what it is the the match itself a lot of fun the elbow drop spot like you said was 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 um crazy Look, you do a 30-minute main event of an AEW show uh, on an 11-match card if you include the pre-show. Like, sometimes, you know, crowds can be dead for that type of stuff. And and they were totally with us the whole time. And that's because MJF just continues to do this whole thing at another level. If it's it, Yes, it's corny sometimes. Just driving the ambulance back is very much a pro wrestling trope or whatever. But he's so 
good at it. And I thought Adam Cole did a really good job of just like his his emotions and mm-hmm. his expressions with all of this, that everybody's fully connected to this. And that's why we continue to to, to buy it. And that's why MJF is one of, if not the best wrestler in, in the world or the country at this point, just in terms of a total package. So we can have a match like this where some things don't make sense. And it could be a little corny. But in the end, you're totally into it. Like that's that's ultimately what you want. That's why he's been a great champ. That's why they're booking him on two matches on every big show that they're doing because mm-hmm. they're absolutely trying to ride this guy and everything he can do. So shout out to MJF for being really, really good at what he does. Jay White, ever since he's come into AW, continues to just not feel like a big deal. And I, it, 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 coming in, doing a tag team, doing all this other stuff. Like the first promo the two of them had, I loved it. But other than that, there's not much Jay White has done where he feels like a big deal when he should. There's moments in that match where you can see it and you're like, I can see why this guy is or should be a star, but he doesn't feel like it moment to moment. And losing this way to a one-legged guy, even with the ring shot, just kind of continues to emphasize that. Yeah, I think you nailed it, um, laid it out really well. And like I said, I want to rewatch this. This is the first time I think ever I've watched a pay-per-view and finished a match and watched it in its entirety and had no idea what to grade it. Like usually I'm, I say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start with this. I'm going to start with this. I'll rewatch it. And maybe I adjusted a half point or something like that. It happens all the time. I am completely mixed. So because of that, I'm going to start this off at 3.75 stars B plus, And mm-hmm. I promise you, I will come back on Thursday. I could very well see it going a lot higher. I may also potentially go lower on it. Everything else I'm very confident in my grades, the rest of the mat, the rest of the card. But for this, I need to rewatch it again. I need to experience the storytelling of Cole coming out, MJF coming out, and then sit and concentrate and watch this 30-minute match without any other distractions, which I was able to do for pretty much everything else on the card. But this one was very difficult for me to truly judge and fairly grade in that way. But I do not have it as an A+. I can tell you that for sure. People saying that the storytelling no. was great and it overcame all of this. Or the, or the work rate was so great that it overcame all... It, no, it, it wasn't. Um, but it was very good, very entertaining in that regard. I don't... I'm not going to trash it the way other people... People said, oh, one of the worst matches AEW's put on. It can't be the case. It was... It was. There were way too many parts of that that were super entertaining and fun for it to be considered one of the worst matches. But I know people are really trashing it. I don't believe it's as bad as most people are saying. But I also don't think it's anything no. spectacular. Right. Well, I'll, I, I don't know if we want to talk about this for a second or not, but I was surprised we didn't get more resolution on some other things like who the devil is. Yeah. Like that was a big part of the buildup and we just didn't get that here. That was that was surprising. Usually kind of AW builds these things up and you do it all the pay-per-view. Mm-hmm. Instead, we just got a storyline that they introduced to us on the pre-show. That was the story for the pay-per-view. Not, not, nothing else that had really led up to the match mattered in terms of like the devil and all that stuff. So that was um, that was surprising. Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up. I I was surprised we didn't get it either. At the same time, I think they're actually taking perhaps a little bit of a lesson from WWE where it's like you can deliver the surprise or the turn or whatever the case right away. Or if you just drag it out a little bit longer, you can get a little bit more excitement, a little bit more heat, a little bit more intrigue and interest in it. And I think that's pretty much the plan here. I, I I would be shocked if it goes past World's End at the end of December. My guess is we may actually get it on television. 
at some point between mm-hmm. as a big moment to draw ratings. And AEW does need to do that because they're selling pay-per-views, but the ratings on the shows are suffering. So I could see it being like two, three weeks from now, this huge reveal at the end of a dynamite where everyone's shocked and it creates huge buzz. Um, I, I could see that happening, but I do agree it was a little bit surprising we didn't get anything here. I happen to think though, and this was kind of where my head was going into the main event, having Cole come back, having him be ringside the entire match, nearly throw in the towel, nearly cost MJF with the ROH title spot, nearly cost ROH with the ring, putting it on the mat. That's all a lot of teases to make you, the viewer, believe that maybe Cole's the devil. Maybe he's not really out for Max's best interest. He's actually looking for his own self-interest. I think it's a red herring. I don't think it's him. I believe it's an entire swerve, but I, I'm guessing that was Tony Khan's booking mindset is we're not going to give him the devil, but we're going to give them a tease, a red herring of the devil by bringing Adam Cole back. Well, and they also had him sort of hesitate to hit Jay White with the title before Jay White took it as right. well. So yeah, a lot of red herrings out there. Exactly. All right, let's move to what I would consider the co-main event of the show. Hangman Adam Page against Swerve Strickland in a Texas death match. Swerve got an entrance with dancers. Hangman just form tackled him out of the gate, adding a powerbomb and a buckshot lariat. Page nailed him uh, in the chest with a staple gun, then taped his hands and stapled his own kid's drawings to Swerve's cheek. At some point during this, Swerve heavily bladed. Page dragged his head downward so he could literally drink his blood dripping into his mouth. And then he did like a Triple H spit take with the blood. This was sick in both definitions of the word. Like sick as in like kind of fucking cool. Never thought I'd see that. Never want to see it again. Also sick as in disgusting. Absolutely never want to see that again. Hangman kept stapling him, but Swerve no sold it eventually. Turned it around on Page before running him into a chair and shredding him with barbed wire. Swerve then bit Page's forehead, hit a Death Valley driver into a cinder block, plus a pile driver onto the top of a barricade. He had a full crimson mask at this point. Hangman wrapped Swerve and barbed wire for a fallaway slam, did a moonsault outside with a barbed wire chair. I actually thought this was the spot of the match. I know it's a simple moonsault, but they executed it perfectly. The chair nailed him. The barbed wire nailed him. I loved it. Um, Prince Nana distracted. Swerve countered Buckshot, then booted a barbed wire chair into Page's face. Hangman then countered a tombstone pile driver into the same chair. Swerve then slammed the chair into Hangman's back, drove him onto it, and hit a swerve stomp with his back on it. Swerve then dumped glass onto Hangman's back, hit a 450 plus the JML driver. Next was a barbed wire board between two chairs. Hangman hit the like Spanish fly style power slam into it. Then he power bombed Swerve into it and uh, hit a dead eye into it. So three moves into this board. Hangman then wrapped barbed wire around Swerve's head, hit a buckshot lariat, only for Nana to pull Swerve out of the ring by his foot in a really smart spot to save the match. Brian Cage ran in and attacked Hangman from behind, hitting a powerbomb, a buckle bomb, and an F5. Yet Hangman found some barbed wire, quickly overcame all of that, negated him with it. Hangman then no-sold a chair shot from Nana and hit Deadeye off the apron, threw a table ringside, taking him out. Swerve caught him with a cinder block to the back, literally exploded it on his back, wrapped a chain around his neck, and then choked him out over the ring post, eventually dropping him for a 10-count victory. Chris, this was simultaneously very much my shit and very much not my shit. The vast majority of it was the former, though. It really was. It was excellent. Top-tier wrestling. 
some great hardcore spots, a consistent level of brutality throughout, callbacks to the drawings, their feud. I mean, the staple gun was a little much for me, This the number of times they used it, but they also like took a singular weapon, the barbed wire chair, which was really well made. It didn't fall apart or anything like that. And they used that for what felt like 10 straight minutes. And it was, a you know, in kayfabe, that's a devastating weapon. A chair is a devastating weapon. Barbed wire, they put it together. There wasn't like a stupid bat, a flaming this, you know, uh, mouse traps, like whatever that, you know, it was one thing. And they used it so significantly in that match. I just, I love that part. But in looking to protect Hangman, the finish did get overbooked because Nana saving Swerve could have directly led to the cinder block. Hangman goes after Nana, distracted. Uh, Swerve hits him with the cinder block. You go through the finish. You did not need Brian Cage out there whatsoever. It, it you know, yep. Hangman no sold it. It didn't factor in. It took you out of the match. I guess they're trying to say, hey, Swerve was dead, but Brian Cage came in and gave him a second life. Look, you had the immense bloodletting and the blood drinking which was disgusting. It may have been a great visual. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's nasty. It is. There was a lot of storytelling elements to counteract that for me, which allowed me to overcome it. I'm going to go, I'm going to go 4.5 stars a here. It's as good of a match as you could possibly have without being an a plus. But let me say, if you're higher at four, seven, five, I don't blame you. I'm going to rewatch it. Blood drinking and all. Maybe I get there, but it's not a five-star match on this show. That's a ceiling. You know, five-star plus is a ceiling. We don't go six, seven, whatever the case. So to be a five-star match, you have to be basically perfect. This was not perfect, but it was damn good. Easily the match of the night. One of the best matches of the entire year. Take away the blood drinking and Brian Cage, and you got something really special. So like coming out of every pay-per-view, I'm like, well, what are the things I'm going to remember when I think about this show? And for me, it's the MJF storyline and the image of Adam Hangman Page tilted over drinking the blood. <laughs> I, I, I guess I shouldn't say drinking because the spitting was a great visual and was less gross than swallowing. <laughs> so yeah, sure, I guess that's true. Yeah, it 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 was still the most disgusting thing I've ever seen in a wrestling match. And like like you, like I like a good hardcore match, but sometimes it goes too far and it just takes me out of it. And that was one of those moments. And it, it was a lot at times, but this was one of the rare times. That AW went all out hardcore and had the story to back it up. Mm -hmm. Yes. This was worthy of a Texas deathmatch. This was Absolutely. worthy of these guys doing these heinous things to each other. So I could get behind it a lot more than pretty much every John Moxley match when he does stuff like this. The 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 Moxley Orange Cassidy stuff from a couple months ago, or whatever. This they earned that. You know, they earned the ability to, to do that stuff. I agree that Brian Cage popping in there was just like random and honestly kind of took away from it because you're just like, dude, these guys are having a classic, classic mm -hmm. match right now. I don't exactly. want Brian Cage in here. And um, so that was what it was. The, the I, I thought they kind of messed up the the finish, the, the, the choking spot, because he goes to hang him. 
And one, he didn't get him up all that high. Oh no, he didn't. Like it, yeah. I felt like you could could you could have done it a little bit more. And also, commentary says Hangman's got his like fingers in between it. That's like something mm-hmm. like that's the only thing keeping him whatever. And then at that moment is when Swerve starts to let it go. So we didn't really get the he's choking him, he's choking him, and then that's the end. They kind of just mistimed that. But you know, it was devastating uh this match and and but it should have been and so i i thought they they really did a good job with this and yes the 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 drink and the blood stuff was freaking disgusting and horrible but you know what it's the thing you're gonna remember oh yeah absolutely and that's ultimately in that and it's all that's ultimately the thing wrestling is about they did a great job totally gonna remember that hangman page lost his first texas death match he was three and oh previously in AEW, and most importantly, and this is what I said, I was going to say we, but I said on the ultimate preview is if you're going to do a Texas death match, you need to have the storyline going into it to make it appropriate. And out of, I think all of them, this was the most appropriate usage of a Texas death match. Uh, family was involved. Paige got back at him for all of that, made him pay. But Swerve won. Swerve is 2-0 and against Hangman. He should be the number one contender for the AEW title. Full stop. That doesn't seem to be the case. There's a lot of other people going after MJF, obviously the devil, whatever that is. Samoa Joe has a guaranteed title match. I guess Jay White's out of the picture now. Kenny Omega's out of the picture. Uh, Wardlow is still going after him. But really, Swerve should be that guy. Leads me to question a little bit. Is it possible Swerve's the devil? Is it possible we didn't see the devil on full gear because the devil was on full gear? So therefore, he wasn't in the mask. That leads you to think about a Swerve or an Adam Cole because they were on TV and you can't wear the mask if your face is front and center on the camera. So something to consider. Just want to put that out there. Let's move to the women's championship. Hikaru Shida against Tony Storm on collision. Storm beat Emi Sakura with a hip attack and Storm Zero. Somehow commentary didn't know the name of her finisher. Sakura uh, avoided hip attack and hit Tiger Driver plus a double underhook backbreaker. There were black and white aesthetics at different parts during the match, mostly during the entrance. I feel like they should have done it the whole time, but I understand why they don't because they want people to enjoy color television in 2023. <laughs> anyway, let's go to full gear. Uh, Storm hit Sheeta with a high heel midway through the match. Sheeta came back with some kicks and a nice falcon arrow. Then she sold an ankle after missing a high risk move as Storm took advantage with an ankle lock put it, and then she pulled off her shoe. Uh, Luthus stopped Sheeta from using a kendo stick. So he had a low blow and kendo stick shots. Storm put a metal tray randomly into the back of her gear. So when she did that, it kind of like slipped two thirds of the way out in blatant view of the referee. Didn't see it apparently. So Storm is going to run and do the hip attack, but she feels the plate has slipped out of her ass basically. So she goes back into the corner and like shoves it back up there. But then as she's running again, it completely slips out, nails Sheeta, she gets the hip attack in the one, two, three. It's in full view of the referee, like for pretty much the entire finish. She gets the win. She wins the title. And then Mariah May comes down with flowers at the end. Two great women's wrestlers in what I thought was a weak as hell match. There were a couple strong sequences for sure. But while I liked the inventiveness of the finish, she does the hip attack, use an object, you put it in the pants, like makes a lot of sense. 
The fact that it was basically double botched, I'm actually, that's not true. It was triple botched because the thing slipped out twice and the referee should have seen it. It really did take this down a significant amount. Storm winning the title was the right booking decision, even though it means another terrible title reign for Sheeta. And AEW actually lingered for once after a title change so we could get her in the black and white aesthetic and we could celebrate her as the new champion. But I'm at 2.5 stars and a C for this match. I actually think that's on a curve because if I didn't like them as much, I might actually be at 2.25, but it's a C average and really it was worse than that. Like you could tell there was a good match to be had and it just kind of wasn't. They went with the gimmick Um, instead of they went with her gimmick and the gimmick of the plate in her butt as opposed to just having a good wrestling match with two of the four best women's wrestlers on the roster. And that's but that's because her gimmick is so incredibly over right now and and, and people are loving it. And I don't I don't blame them for doing that. I, I will, I think, kind of correct you on the finish. I don't think Tony Storm stopped to fix the plate in her butt. She started running and Sheeta wasn't ready. Sheeta was still down. She wasn't positioned in the corner. And so that's why Tony Storm went back. And I think she then fixed it to kind of pretend that was the reason she stopped. I think it okay, looked like Sheeta enough. wasn't ready. And then she went back. But either yes, way, it, it but was Chris, obviously point of order, though, whether yeah. Sheeta wasn't ready or whether she had to fix it. It was still it was a botch, a, a, a yes. mess up in the finish. Like, yeah. Yes. Go ahead. Right. And but I, I like I liked the idea, you know, like, you know, you know, Bret Hart put the metal plate under him when he gets speared by gold. Knox totally. Out. Like that's you know, you put the metal plate in, in her in her butt and she slams it in and that becomes a, a finisher. And so, like, I got what they were going for and I was fine with that. And it played off of Luther bringing it out at the beginning of the match. Um, it just was unfortunate that, yeah, it was completely sticking out. Uh, the referee, you, you got to go with it. That's the finish. You I know. know. So, yeah. um, it, it was, it was, um, it was okay. I really like what Tony Storm's doing. Her winning the title made sense here, I guess. Although I do worry it's the kind of character that maybe doesn't need the title. And so therefore getting the title kind of yeah takes it as far as you can go. We'll see. Um, but I, I like the whole hand somebody a script thing and she just rips it up. Like that was like, it was like a little funny thing at mm-hmm. the beginning of the match. So I like that. It was very gimmick heavy. I, I thought they did a good job with the gimmicky stuff, but the match was very average. Fiend esque, where the gimmick is so good and entertaining on its own that it could succeed as a separate women's storyline that you see on most shows and you have the women's title separately, but because they only do one match a show and maybe at most two women's segments a show, you basically got to put the title yeah. on Tony Storm if you want to if you want her featured. Now they've been doing it they've been doing it to this point without that being the case by doing her vignettes and her videos. But you know now she's the champion. So look here's my here's my take. Very simple. If they had run a regular match and done the exact same finish, I would have been much softer on it because the match would have been so high quality that even though I loved the concept of the finish, if the execution's not there, that's a minor demerit. It's not the end of the world but the match itself wasn't that good. And then they like triple botched the finish and just like, all right, you're not getting a good grade for that. So that's where I stand. Let's move to the international championship. Orange Cassidy against John Moxley. Mox opened by straight beating the absolute shit out of Orange, who came back by biting Mox's forehead open on the ropes, hitting a tope suicida. Mox feigned being punch drunk. Orange countered Death Rider into a flip over stunner for Mox to no-sell it and then drill him repeatedly with forearms and lock in a choke. 
Orange put Mox in red rum. Hook was ringside. So Mox purposefully pulled a turnbuckle off as a break. Uh, he had an RKO out of nowhere, plus a gotch pile driver. Orange dodged Mox into the exposed turnbuckle, then threw him into it, or pushed him into it, I should say. He also hit a few orange punches, plus beach break for the clean one, two, three to retain. And it is very possible. I missed like a, like 10 seconds of part of that finish because I remember there was a moment where I looked away, but that was pretty much what we got. Excellent match, perfectly sold by Mox and a perfectly solid booking decision. We speculated on the ultimate preview whether the plan was always for Orange to win the title back here with obviously Mox never supposed to lose it in the first place. And it seems like that was probably the original booking. The difference being because Mox did have to give up the title. They had Orange win it back and then retain it over Mox as opposed to beat him for it. This also, for me, worked against expectation because Mox is the established main eventer and Orange is the upper mid, upper mid carter. I saw a lot of people coming back saying there is no scenario in which Orange should beat Mox like this. And I disagree. It's wrestling. You know, sometimes baby faces go over heels. Sometimes there's upsets. Sometimes there's guys like Mox who bloodlet and are, you know, nasty and beat the shit out of people. And they lose to someone who's a little bit more flamboyant in terms of their maneuvers and their wrestling style, like Orange Cassidy. I don't see much of a problem with that whatsoever. What's going to be really interesting to see is where Mox goes from here after taking a clean L to Orange and what they do with Cassidy, who already had a really long international title reign and now just beat Mox and should not be losing it anytime soon. So how do they keep Orange from getting stale as champion? And what do they do with Mox to make him interesting? I'm at four stars A- minus for this, but this is going to be one of the matches I rewatch and I could definitely go another quarter point higher. Really good match. These guys have great chemistry together. Like every time we've seen them, it's really good. Like you could do a lot of matches with these guys and I think people would always be into it and they'd always come up with something creative. You know, the, the whole how can Orange Cassidy beat Mox? Well, that's why they've kind of turned... Orange Cassidy into a serious character. You know, it's more of a serious push instead of just being the jokey guy. And so in order to beat Mox, like you kind of got got to do that. So um, I wasn't sure coming in which way this would go, honestly, even though I know the title's kind of gone back and forth. Um, so I was pleasantly surprised by the finish. And yeah, I don't really have much to say other than good match. Mox was bleeding. We know that. Um and Orange Cassidy continues to look more and more legitimate. Mm -hmm. So, look, he couldn't be the jokey guy forever. You have to evolve him as a character, and I think he's been doing a good job of that over the last couple of months. Yeah, no question. So Will Ospreay was announced as the newest AEW signee. He came out, signed the contract in the middle of the ring, announcing that he won't be debuting in AEW just yet because New Japan has been great to him since he was a young wrestler, and he wants to finish out his contract with them before he joins the road to revolution. This is an immense signing for AEW, arguably the best wrestler in the world who could have gone anywhere he wanted to, chose AEW. As I said on Twitter, and as I also wrote more extensively on buymeacoffee.com slash getting over our page that you can subscribe to, WWE was never an actual option for him. And this was done in the way it was done to make it look like, an, like a talent chose AEW over WWE. And technically that's true because I'm sure he had an offer or a conversation with them. But this, Chris, happens all the time in college football. There are kids, recruits out of high school who you know are going to Alabama, but they do interviews 
at the end of the process, here's why I really like Georgia. I might actually go to Georgia. They're my two finalists. I'll make a decision. I have no idea who I'm going to pick. Then they commit to Alabama and they do an interview after saying, yeah, I've known for three months. Like it doesn't diminish the fact that that kid committed to Alabama. It doesn't diminish the fact that Osprey is being added to AEW, but it does make it very clear. Like the stuff he was saying in the media about, oh, I'm really interested in WWE. It was all bullshit to make AEW look good. Again, nothing wrong with that. Just the facts of what happened here. It also doesn't diminish the fact that Osprey is a massive addition for AEW. And at age 30, he has an extremely high ceiling still. It would have been even more impactful had he not been wrestling there for a year already and already made four-ish appearances. I'm forgetting the exact number, but it's still immensely newsworthy either way. It's a huge talent acquisition for them, and they're only going to get better because they have Will Ospreay. Yeah, big addition. I think, it, you know, one of the few times where they really hyped up a big Tony Khan announcement and it was a proper result. It wasn't a stunning result, but it was a proper, you know, that's pretty big. Um, he's been really good. He's he's a top guy, a one of the best wrestlers in the world still, and a guy, you know, you can help carry a, a company. And it'll, it'll be interesting. It'll be really interesting to see him on weekly television, mm-hmm. which I don't believe has really been the case. It sounded like he said, um, no, it hasn't on, uh, on the post scrum. So it's another step for him. And in the post scrum, he said, uh, he said it's, uh, yeah, he can, as he said out there, but he wants to finish with new Japan and do all this stuff. So he's got to do a couple things still. Um, only other thing I wanted to say was it really stuck out to me this time, but somebody asked him like, Hey, who do you want to wrestle in AEW? And you, you hear these these questions in the press conferences all the time. Hey, now that you join the company, who do you want to wrestle? Who do you want to wrestle? And it's such a weird question to me to ask some to ask a person. Mm-hmm. It feels like you're asking, hey, who do you want to have sex with? Who do you like out there that you want to just kind of get physical with? Like, it's a weird ass <laughs> question that they always ask. And it's just like because fans are like, oh, Will Ospreay wants to wrestle Miro. It's just like it's just a weird question to open up fantasy booking that doesn't actually answer anything. It's weird, but Will Ospreay is really good, and it's a good main event type of pickup for the company. I did find part of this unintentionally funny. So he starts like explaining, he's like, I'm going to sign with AEW, but I'm not going to show up yet. And he's like, hold on, hold on. Don't everyone freak out. And like, no one was freaking out. Everyone was just listening to him cut a promo. Everyone's like, all right, Will, we're here to hear. Come on, bruv. Well, yeah, come on, bruv. We want to hear what you, what you have to say. Everyone's fully in- attentive. And he's like, yeah, uh, you know, I'm not going to be able to show up immediately. And like. <laughs> tries to ward off people booing. No one was booing. Everyone in AEW, every AEW fan knew exactly why he can't debut yet because he currently is signed to New Japan. He's signed probably until February. And w- once that deal is over, he'll join AEW. He'll get ready for Revolution. I'm like, that's totally fine. There's n- no one has an issue with that. So it was so funny the way he like tried to ward off booing when there was no one booing. I just thought that was funny. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I don't really like that they talked about that. Like to me, like... Hey, I'm signing, but I'm I'm coming later. Like, don't don't tell me that. Just be. You'll like, see me soon. I'm. You'll see me soon. I'm coming. I'm coming. And then like just every once in a while, a vignette. Right. Where is Will Osprey? Well, he's coming. And then he shows up or something like that. You know, like yeah. The talk about contracts and like I don't want that on my. I don't want that on TV. I, I'm in another company, but I'm coming over soon. We're friendly. Blah blah blah. Like. No, man, that doesn't excite me. Like, give me, give me a, give me a story. It's like, possible. Do something like that. I'm going to interject. It's possible. It was a condition. 
Could be. Yeah. Maybe it was a condition. Just to give him a little bit of a break. But regardless, AEW, Will Ospreay, very big move. AEW Tag Team Championships, Ricky Starks and Big Bill defended against LFI, FTR, and K-O-B-T. I made that up. Kings of the Black Throne. Uh, this ended up being a ladder match. You may say, Silver King, how did this become a ladder match? I will tell you. On Collision, the champions backstage said they didn't like how they could lose the titles in this match without getting pinned or submitted. So Starks spoke with Tony Khan and got him to make it a ladder match. So now they can lose the titles without anyone being pinned or submitted. Right? That's completely logical as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Kings of the Black Throne squashed the boys in an unnecessary match. Starks said on commentary uh, during a real strong Dax Harwood Roosh match, except Roosh shoved Starks in the face at the desk and took an hour to try bull's horns in an immensely telegraphed finish. It was ruled a no contest, even though it was actually a disqualification. Everyone from the title match brawled with Brody King and Big Bill having a stare down before doing a tug of war with a ladder. It was a decent brawl that ended in a commercial break. This entire booking was backwards. What you do is you hold the match with the ladder spot first. You have Starks like double dropkick both of them into the ladder. And then you have them flip out backstage and demand a ladder match stipulation. That's logical. The stipulation would make sense. Instead, it was completely backwards that they did it this way. Alas, we'll get to the match itself. So the big men squared off early only to get squashed by ladders in a notable, albeit choreographed sequence. Cash Wheeler did a low blow to Malachi Black on the ropes, plus a pile driver onto an elevated ladder. Starks went on a hot run where I did miss a few spots, but Brody King cleared the ring. He also bladed at some point and eventually had a full crimson mask. Bill dumped King back off a ladder onto another. Roosh did a bull's horns dropkick into a ladder, nailing Bill in the head. King then murdered Drillistico and nearly himself with a tightrope walk pile driver into a propped up ladder. Cash then put King on the same ladder and splashed him and it didn't break either time. Starks and Dax uh, battled on the ladder. Black pulled Dax down and tagged him with Black Mass only to get knocked outside by Cash. Starks then punched Cash off the ladder, unhooked one title, dropped it to Bill, unhooked the other for himself, and retained. As mentioned, I missed part of the Starks run, but otherwise, this seemed like a fun, typical ladder match with some overly dangerous moves, but also a lot of really great action. The addition of the ladder stipulation, despite the storyline problems I mentioned, undoubtedly enhanced the match, or enhanced, I should say, the match. Uh, Starks and Bill, or FTR, were the two teams I thought one of them would actually come out with the titles, and it was Starks and Bill that did it. Am I that excited about them as a tag team? I'm not, but I didn't think LFI or Kings of the Black Throne made any sense taking the titles in this spot. I'm going four stars A- minus here, and just like I said with Orange and Mox, this is what I might elevate another quarter star on rewatch. Yeah, it was it was fine. Some, sometimes these matches can get a little convoluted or too violent, and I don't think it did that. There was some creative stuff, the slingshot of the ladder, uh, the bull's horns. Um, and ultimately, Ricky Starks basically kind of living up to what he said, which was he didn't really take any of the big spots. He stayed he stayed pretty clean, and then he's the one who ends up going and getting the belts. And, and Bill's height ended up making a difference. So, uh, you know, good little fun match. Hope everybody's okay. And But you're right. It, it was never a doubt, I think, who was going to win this. Let's move to the Golden Jets against the Young Bucks. Uh, the Jets would get the Bucks guaranteed tag team title match if they win, but the Jets would disband if the Bucks win. That was a stipulation for the match. The Bucks took out Jericho's finisher elbow with the steel steps and worked it for an extremely long period of time. 
Omega finally got a hot tag to inject some much-needed energy into the match. Jericho got Matt Jackson and Walls of Jericho, with Omega eliminating Nick outside into the barricade. Jericho's arm gave out with Matt escaping. The Bucks then stopped Jericho trying a lion salt by attacking the elbow, hitting a draping senton bomb and a false finish. Jericho took Matt off the ropes with a hurricanrana, only to eat a low blow from Nick. It seemed like he was going to do a low blow to Omega also, but like the referee got involved, everything got messed up, so Matt low blowed Omega. Nick caught Jericho with Judas Effect for a broken fall, then hit a springboard on Omega outside. Then Jericho ate a BTE trigger for a false finish. Omega prevented Meltzer Driver, and Jericho low blowed Nick with the referee distracted. There was a spot where Omega had a choice on who he could V-trigger, either Jericho or one of the Bucks. And for some reason, it was meant to be a surprise that he V-triggered one of the Bucks when they're the opponents in the match. Uh, Nick countered one-winged Angel with a Poison Rana, then Matt hit one-winged Angel for a false finish. The faces prevented Meltzer Driver as Jericho caught Nick flying with a Codebreaker. Jericho got the Judas Effect arm super kicked, so he hit it with the other arm. Omega then caught Matt with a Ripcord V-trigger and one-winged Angel for the one 2 3 to earn the tag team title match, and Matt threw another fit outside, slamming stuff around the ring, losing his cool, all that. This did not go as I expected, but it was strong storytelling with the Bucks snapping and Omega standing tall with Jericho. It started immensely slow and probably went seven minutes longer than necessary, but the finishing sequence was great playing into the match story. Ultimately, it didn't come close to living up to the Swerve Hangman match, which immediately preceded it, and you had to weigh it directly against that. But it was immensely well done, and I'm curious to see where the storyline heads now. Maybe the Bucks actually join the Don Callis family? Lots of different possibilities. Jericho kicking out of the BTE trigger felt kind of ridiculous, but he sold his ass off during this match with the arm spot. I think what hurt me most about this is I just don't really care about Omega and Jericho as a team. I'm not saying they're bad as a team, but I don't kind of care about them. I know they're not going to win the tag team titles. And the Bucks heel turn, while I think that's a positive for them, they're way better in that regard. I don't really care about their feud with Omega and Jericho either. So that part of it was really tough for me to get uh, excited and involved in the entire thing. As far as a grade, I will say, yeah, four stars, A minus. I'm kind of right there for a lot of the matches on the show. I think I gave the same grade to the international title match, the tag team title match, and now this, but they were all right there, like really solid, excellent matches, but just not much more than that. Yeah, I mean, this was in the popcorn match type of slot, even though AEW doesn't kind of really do those. And credit to them, the crowd was into this at the end. Uh, But like you, I just I didn't really care about it coming in. I didn't really care about it going out. So is what it is. I thought they did a good job. Uh, But yeah, I don't really have any other thoughts on it because just it just kind of was what it was. I did forget to mention there were some CM Punk chants at one point during this match. Folks, if you are going to a wrestling show, you can chant whatever you want except for two things. CM Punk and what? Literally anything else you can chant, I'm okay with. Stop chanting CM Punk and stop chanting what? It is ridiculous. It is 2023, man. This shit is old. You don't need to protest chant a Young Bucks match. You don't need to chant what? when Bailey is cutting a really good promo over on SmackDown. It's ridiculous. It's stupid. Be better fans. Simple as that. 
Sting, Darby Allen, and Adam Copeland fought Christian Cage, Luchasaurus, and Nick Wayne. This actually opened the show. On Collision, Christian ranted on Sting, wanting to retire him early. He learned Ric Flair would be ringside for the match, basically promising to kill him if he gets involved. Then he said Copeland was coddled and insulated for his entire career while he clawed for every inch. Christian promised to break Edge's neck to close it. The best part about this was that Tony Schiavone was actually allowed to do a full in-ring interview with multiple questions. Everything from Christian felt immensely try-hard for me. It seems like he has this character where he's meant to offend people, so he tries to offend someone with every single line as opposed to cutting a regular promo with one or two offensive things thrown in there. I much prefer strong promos that have a couple of those great lines as opposed to trying to get a reaction every single time. It's what MJF does so well that many others do not. Did you have anything about this before I go to the match? No, no, not really. Uh, The Patriarchy got a children's choir entrance with updated graphics, including an official logo for the faction. Huge improvement, much better presentation. Ric Flair got a full entrance to stand ringside. The faces all came out in face paint, wielding bats, wearing black and white. But they came out to Copeland's music instead of Sting's. Sting's the one retiring. Christian tagged out after Copeland tagged in. Luchasaurus chokeslammed Darby over the ropes onto the ring apron in a gnarly spot. Then Darby took Wayne off the ropes with a code red. Christian snuck around and pushed Copeland into a post. Sting did a running splash off the apron and combined with Copeland for a scorpion death drop leg drop. Wayne then ate a double vertical suplex splash. Flair started chopping Christian outside. And when I say in clear view of the referee, Rick Knox was staring at them as Ric Flair was interfering in the match. So Christian low blows him and doesn't just low blow him, but with his hand all the way up his crotch, starts like jiggling his balls. Like, I'm like, what are you doing? You already low blowed him. You're moving it around. is not going to accomplish anything. So the referee's distracted. Christian tries to use the title on Copeland, but instead knocked out Luchasaurus, completely ran out of the arena because he was scared Copeland was going to catch him. Uh, Adam speared Luchasaurus, and Darby hit coffin drop for the one, two, three. Then Darby grabbed the mic and said fucking three times because he wanted the crowd to cheer louder for Sting because it was his last match in California. This was truly a Rick Knox special from an officiating perspective. It was a smart match to open the show because it got the crowd hot. The work was strong. Darby did a lot of the heavy lifting as one would expect. It was more a Sting honorific than anything else. Nothing wrong with that, but it was pretty basic outside of Darby doing what Darby does. 3.25 stars in a B. Yeah, it was um, it was fun. You know, it, it was the opening six man. You get all the people you want to cheer. The, the faces win like it, it all made sense. And it it was what it was. I like the idea of the half face paint on, on two of them, the bats, the jackets like, look, if you're going to have three faces come together and fight a team that now has a logo, try to be a team yourself. Like, I, I always appreciate that. So I, I, I like that effort. And to your point about the stuff going on inside the ring and Rick Knox not saying anything credit to commentary for chiming in with a referee's discretion, you know, good, good job of trying to cover it. Uh, they didn't really have a choice moment. <laughs> to be fair. Yeah, no, but it was, it was important to say, because <laughs> yeah. sometimes, I mean, like sometimes in the past you'd have like Jim Ross being like, why didn't the ref do anything? And they just kind of have to figure it out. They just immediately went to say discretion. So credit there. Uh, yeah, just a fun opener. I did. I, they mentioned that Darby Allen is going to go climbing Mount Everest like in a week or something like that. <laughs> All I could think about is that that's probably a lot l- less of a wear on his body than the wrestling he does is uh, like. Jesus Christ, what this 
guy puts himself there. Good thing he didn't pop out a shoulder, break an arm or something like that uh, before he goes and does Everest. So uh, go enjoy that climb, I guess, Darby. And I maybe we'll have some good vignettes from it or something. Yeah. Uh, let's move to the TBS championship. Chris Statlander, Julia Hart and Sky Blue in a triple threat. On collision, the women all got 20 second promos in a package. This was maybe the best stat has ever spoken, but it was taped, and that's the reason why nothing of importance was said. The match, uh, Sky had completely different extended blue eye makeup, so I guess I lied on Thursday when I said I wasn't going to talk about that anymore, but it was different, notable. (laughs) Uh, The concept, though, was that she completed her metamorphosis, and that played out when she faced off with Hart. They shook hands, one in blue, one in red, but of course, Julia was a heel, and she struck her first. Hart hit a moonsault on blue for a broken fall. Sky countered Saturday Night Fever into a pinning combination, then countered downstat for code blue in a false finish. Hart interrupted a real code blue with a super kick and put blue in heartless. Stat pulled both into German suplexes and swung blue into Saturday Night Fever, but Hart clotheslined her during the cover and then pinned Sky for the one, two, three to win the title. I got to tell you, this was easily one of the best AEW women's matches in a long time. And I think it's largely because most of the matches we've recently got, specifically on television, have been pretty much exactly the same with pretty much exactly the same people. Now, granted, two of the, or actually all three of the women in this match were involved in that monotony on television, but doing a triple threat and booking it the way they did, for me, made it feel completely different. The agency of it was excellent. They had separate sequences involving different pairs of women. We got a swerve finish with stat and blue, the right winner being Hart because she is the hot hand in the mid-card part of this division. We talked about that on the Ultimate Preview. It also protected stat a little bit, given the way it transpired. She didn't get pinned and she would have had the pin if it wasn't for Hart really just making a move. It was hotter in the finish than it was to the start. I'm going to go 3.5 stars and a B, but they were fantastic here. And I legitimately enjoyed this among the most out of anything on the show. And I gave many matches better grades than this, but I was fully invested in this. I loved the way they booked it. And yeah, there you go. One of the rare AEW spots where you, where the expectations are low coming in and therefore you have a chance to exceed them. And that's what they did. This was a lot of fun. Uh, good wrestling and the finish. I really like the finish. I thought that was a really creative way to do it. Julia Hart, they said, I think the youngest AEW champion now at 22 years old, which yeah. is still wild. Um, she's got so much still ahead of her. Uh, so shout out to her for for getting into this uh, spot here. And yeah, a, a needed title change. I think we all kind of agreed coming in. This was this was a pick. Uh, so, yeah, good job, everybody involved. Yeah, she's everything that AEW thought they had in like Anna Jay and the bunny and all that. Like Julia is that she has the future yeah. in her hands, 22 years old. She's winning this title and it was the right decision on top of everything else. It's really all you need to say. Uh, Claudio Castagnoli fought Buddy Matthews at zero hour on collision. Buddy fought Wheeler Yuta commentary told us four times that this was a great match. And yeah, it was very well wrestled. Yuta hit like a draping splash inside. Matthews caught him on the ropes with two huge kicks, a running power bomb and the stomp and an ode to Seth Rollins for the win. So cool that he does that. I wish he used Murphy's law as his finisher, which is, Way more unique to him and much better. Uh, Buddy grabbed a chair uh, to attack Wheeler, only for Claudio to run down for the save, saying Matthews got his attention and he wanted him to fight him. I'm just glad we got a storyline reason for the match, which I was extremely excited to see. Uh, Claudio impressively flipped out of a back body drop before catching Buddy flying for a swing. This is obviously on zero hour. 
Matthews hit three head trap super kicks and a power bomb into a jackhammer, into a cross face. Claudio came back with two European uppercuts, a power bomb, and a sharpshooter. Just as Buddy was able to reach the ropes, Claudio pulled him back inside. And I did miss whether this was a tap out or the referee called the match. If it was a tap out, fine. But if the referee called it, ridiculous. That doesn't change the grade though. Extremely strong bell to bell. Just didn't get enough time for a particularly exciting match other than just having really solid work rate. So 3.5 stars and a B, but I mean, I loved it. It was great. I did not catch all of this. I only saw a little bit of the end because I was watching football and flipped it over and forgot this was going on. Okay. And then one more Ring of Honor title match, Eddie Kingston against Jay Lethal, also on Zero Hour. On Rampage, Lethal backstage told Kingston he wanted his match in this spot. Kingston called him out for assimilating with Jeff Jarrett's crew and becoming a coward when he knows he's better than that. Ortiz then gave Eddie a head nod. My assumption was this would result in Lethal coming out to the ring by himself. That did not happen. Uh, Given they've been telling the story for weeks, they should have announced this match well before Rampage, which was like, what, 20 hours before this began? Like, they've been telling the story for weeks. Just announced it last week or two weeks ago. I I don't understand that. Anyway, uh, on Zero Hour, Eddie countered Lethal off the ropes for a near fall, then countered Lethal injection with a Saito suplex and a Uranagi. Lethal reached for the guitar, only for Ortiz to run down, grab it, and destroy Sanjay Dutt. Kingston then countered Lethal Injection into a half and half, hitting the back fist to retain the title in 11 minutes. The faces dapped up after the bell. Perfectly fine kickoff show match. Literally nothing else to say. Three stars, B minus. Anything for you? Or did you miss this as well? Caught a little, caught a, a chunk of it. Um, Hathaway, Stokely Hathaway were really funny on commentary. Eddie Kingston was pretty funny after the match, grabbing the microphone and talking to Renee and do, talking about some pre-show stuff. So um, Eddie's great, man. Like, the best. I've said it before, yeah. like he's doing his Ring of Honor stuff and all that. But like, man, like this dude should be on uh, Dynamite every week cutting a promo. He is one of the most interesting people in the company. And I just wish we'd get him back on regular AW TV more instead of kind of doing all that stuff on the side. I know he's doing his New Japan stuff and yada, yada and Connell Classic and all that. And like, man, I, we, we like Eddie because he can talk, he's a character and he gets you connected on a storyline level. Like his wrestling is fine, but like, we're not watching him for the wrestling. So surprised they don't, I'm surprised they don't lean on him more in, in, in different types of ways. Yeah, for sure. So that wraps up the instant analysis of full gear along with zero hour and a lot of notes from rampage and collision for just so everyone who's listening knows everything else that happened Friday night on AEW television. We will discuss this coming Thursday on our next AEW podcast, where we will also maybe have some adjusted grades and takes on Full Gear once I get an opportunity to rewatch some of it. But Chris, that brings us to the final part of this show, our grades. And we always kick off with a reminder of where we stood in the pre-show coming in. I was at a B plus on the Ultimate Preview. You unfortunately did not get to join the Ultimate Preview, but I did text you before the show and ask your pre-show expectation grade. You came back with a B. And then the listeners are getting overheads who voted in our Twitter poll, again, at Getting Overcast on Twitter, 21% A, 54% B, 15% C, and 10% D to F. That averages out to an 84, so a flat B. With all of that said, when we do post-show grades, you always get the opportunity to go first. So Chris, what is your final grade for AEW Full Gear? B plus 
There was nothing on the show that was bad. It wasn't a ridiculous 15 match card or something like that. So I like I know, I know we were watching football on top of it, but it didn't feel like, oh, my God, there's a million things I got to <laughs> it did keep not. track of yeah. on the show. Um, we got a fun, entertaining main event and main event storyline. And we had one of the best, maybe one of the best, best death matches we've ever had. You've got a women's title. You got two women's title changes. So it was solid. Nothing, nothing, you know, like I said, what I'm going to remember is Am Jeff storyline and, and Hangman Page drinking blood. But it, everything was perfectly solid. Only one match I think was outstanding and amazing. B plus. So there were 11 matches on the card. I went back to count while you were talking. If you add the Will Ospreay yes. segment, and some of the storytelling, maybe you say that's 12 segments, right? In totality, way more palatable than 15. It's just a night and day difference. I still wish they would cut it down a little bit. You can put as much as you want on zero hour, but on the main card, you don't need to have this many matches. They definitely could have cut one of them, but it did not you, feel- you cut, you, you, cut, you cut Golden Jets, Young Bucks. That didn't yes, need to be on the Yes, there show. you go. You cut that from the show and it's much more palatable in terms of an overall length of runtime. No question about it. Um, I'll go to the listener grades before I give mine, just so we set the stage. Uh, you said B plus. They are at twenty seven point five percent A, which is an increase from the pre show. Forty six percent B, which is a decrease. Nineteen percent C, an increase. Seven point five percent D or F, because it's very similar across the board. That actually averages out to an eighty five. They were at an eighty four. Now they're at an eighty five flat B. I just think those grades are too low, straight up. I mean, look, I had issues clearly with the main event booking, the way that transpired, the lack of logic that was utilized to get to that. This is what people criticize WWE for a lot of times, not something like this, but they did. People heavily criticized WCW back in the day for doing some stuff like this. And AEW, they've largely stayed away from it, which is one of the reasons they have such a strong fan sentiment, you know, positively for them. This was a step in a very different direction. And while, again, some of it was entertaining individually in the show in a silo, it did bother me from that respect. That said, there were a number of excellent matches. One absolute standout match, obviously. Hangman and Swerve, I feel exactly the same way as you. Legitimately memorable. We'll definitely watch it many times, you know, over the rest of my wrestling fandom uh, life. Not, not too many times, though. Well, I'll, I can fast forward. You can you can skip. I can skip the first ten <laughs> minutes and still enjoy the match. You know, it's totally fine. Um, but it, but it's it was fantastic. There was just a lot of very good on the rest of the card. That's pretty much yeah. the best way I can say it. it. It wasn't a transformative show. Nothing happened that was groundbreaking. Uh, Osprey was expected. There was no devil reveal. The ch- title changes were completely expected and predicted, and the non-title changes were completely expected and predicted. So I can't go higher than a B plus, but I am at an 88 out of 100. I think it was a very entertaining show with high quality wrestling. Um, But am I ever going to sit down and watch this entire show again, like for entertainment value? No, it would be one match and nothing else. I agree. Most AW shows are not ones I'm going to go back and rewatch the whole thing, but it was solid. Like I, I, the last couple months, I've not been able to watch as much AW because I've been busy with work, but you know, they continue to do pay-per-view shows that are really solid to good. Like there, there's never a bad one. And I think that's a credit to, to them. 
lot of different storylines and things you can take out of it, but it was good. What did you think before we wrap up the camera angle on the show looked very strange because there was that like little overhang spot and some people standing it like it looked like they were in a small Mm -hmm. arena, but instead it was an arena with apparently 13,000 people in it. Um, also, apparently has no video boards in the entire building, so people couldn't see replays and stuff like that. Um, what did you make of the the camera angle and kind of the broadcast? Yeah, I'm glad you asked because I actually said something about it before the show. So the Kia Forum, which is where this emanated from, seems like a cool-ass venue. It's in Inglewood, always up to no good. But I don't think I'd ever book this for a pay-per-view. Like, I would do it for TV just because of its location get a lot of fans in there. It is California. They can get loud. But when you're watching that, it looks like you're watching Ring of Honor or NXT or something because you can't see yeah. people. And one of the really cool things about AEW is the fan engagement. But you didn't get to see it. And because you couldn't see it on the hard cam, production did so many additional cuts to fans that they actually missed some key moments in the show because they cut away from it to show people reacting as opposed to just naturally seeing them in the back of the hard cam. So again, I I thought the the venue was fine, you know, in terms of what it did for AEW. They sold a lot of tickets. It was, you know, successful. They're not going to run Staples Center or anything like that. But I personally, if I was booking for AEW venues, I would never run a pay-per-view here. It looks terrible on camera. I want as many fans as possible. And you know what? This happens as well with WWE when they run... I think it's Crown Jewel every year from Ryda in Saudi Arabia. Um, yes, it's Riyadh. Yes, Riyadh. Yes, <laughs> Ryda, uh, Riyadh. Yes, uh, they have like whatever it is, twelve rows of fans, and then a massive video board. But meanwhile, there's eighteen thousand people there. I want to see the people. That's one of the reasons WrestleMania and SummerSlam and Royal Rumble and all these uh, backlash and all these events that they do uh, overseas or just their major events. They look so cool. Is you see people going crazy, and as a home viewer it amps up your level of excitement for the show. It's one thing to hear it through your speakers. It's another thing to visually see people going crazy and having that much in the background, people walking out of a door with like concessions and going back to their seats and stuff. And this wasn't even Madison Square Garden from the 90s where it was just a little tiny, you know, vom area and there were still people everywhere else. This was a visual nightmare as far as I was concerned. So I would never run this venue again for a pay-per-view, but if they want to do TV there, that's fine. Yeah, I I would agree with that. All right. Well, look, that wraps up our instant analysis for AEW Full Gear. I know you and I were both worried about doing another two-hour instant analysis, but we cut this down pretty nicely, especially extremely late on a Saturday night. Now, there is still a ton to come here going forward on the Getting Over wrestling podcast. We will be back on Tuesday with your WWE Survivor Series War Games Ultimate Preview. That's right, Chris. We need to do this again next week. Rivalry week for college football. Talk about absolute hell. But we will have your Ultimate Preview for WWE Survivor Series War Games on Tuesday. We'll be back on Thursday with your AEW and NXT episode. Again, second look at AEW War Games on that show. And then next Saturday, same bat time, same bat channel, your WWE Survivor Series War Games instant analysis. If you are a first-time listener, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Whether you're a first-time listener or a multi-time listener, 
please remember that the Getting Over Wrestling podcast is all about Defy. And I would love it if you left a five-star rating for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. On Apple, if you took a little extra time, left a five-star written review, let everyone know how much you love the show. I would like that even more. Please remember to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. And again, around pay-per-views and premium live events, you get to vote in our pre and post-show polls, which we discussed. You can also DM and tweet us questions and comments that we will read on the show. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, sign up, you get bonus audio, fastest five minutes in professional wrestling you get exclusive news posts analysis and extra stuff that you do not get here on the getting over wrestling podcast thanks once again to vintage chris vanini for joining tonight thanks to all of you for listening this is the silver king adam silverstein signing off and leaving you with just three final words bye for now